We'll be using some scripture today, quite a lot of scripture. If you want to go to John 14, that's where we'll be starting. Matthew is going to help me and put the scriptures on the wall because uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to ask everybody to turn to every reference. Otherwise, we'll be eating into this evening's song service. But uh, I'm more than happy to give anybody references after the service if you want the list of these scriptures. But for the sake of time, I will be getting Maddie to put them on the wall. Amen. Uh, just to recap from last week, we've started a series uh, on apostolic identity and what that means. And if you weren't here last week, you can get a hold of that message. It was recorded. Uh, it's not on the podcast yet. I'm still catching up with uploading onto the podcast after being away. So bear with me. If you can't wait till I upload it, you can always get a CD. It'll cost you a couple of dollars, but I think that's a good investment. And uh, we, we began a series of lessons on what it means to claim to be apostolic or to be an apostolic church. So let's just pray and then we'll get into things. Lord, we thank you for your presence that's here. We thank you for, Lord, the worship and the liberty that we've had. God, you know every heart that's here today, Lord. You know every person's need and situation. Lord God, and you are the answer to every need. God, I pray you bring comfort where we need comfort. Lord, bring strength, bring encouragement. Lord God, just have your way in our lives, we pray. And Lord, as we consider these things, Lord, may... It help us to have confidence in you, confidence in your word. Lord, in this day and age, we need to know what we believe and who we are, Lord God, and what our hope is. And so I just pray that you would help us this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless the Lord. We discussed last week that it is a relatively easy thing to incorporate the word apostolic into the name of your church, into the name of an organization, or even to make a statement about your own personal faith. I'm an apostolic. That's not hard to do. Anybody can do that. Hollywood has shown us through the years that anybody can stand at a microphone and say they're a Christian. But to make a statement is, is a good start, but it's not really enough. You see, to have a true apostolic identity, we must demonstrate a connection with the apostles. We may be 2,000 years removed from the apostolic age, but if we claim to be apostolic, there must be factors that we have in common with the apostles. And those factors must be significant enough to affirm the claims that we make. Amen. Last Sunday morning, we identified three areas that we're going to consider that we think must be there to prove our apostolic identity. The first one is apostolic doctrine, the beliefs and teachings of the apostles. The second one we said was we must have is an apostolic experience, that those doctrines and teachings must have some kind of demonstration in our lives. We taught on Wednesday night a little bit about grace and faith and how faith begins with knowledge, but then it moves to belief and it moves to action. You know, how shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. First, we have to know, then we have to believe, and then we have to respond. And if we're going to be apostolic... That must be the complete package. If we're going to teach it, we must also experience it. Amen. And thirdly, we establish that we must have an apostolic lifestyle. As the apostles lived out the commandments and the principles of Scripture and applied them to their time and culture, so must we. Amen. Bless the Lord. So today we're going to consider the first of those three areas, and that is the area of apostolic doctrine. Amen. Doctrine 
is a word that many of you would be aware has been shunned by people in religious circles. It's a word that's not popular today. You don't see the word doctrine thrown around much in, in church environments. And one of the reasons for this is that doctrine divides. Doctrine causes division along different points of view and can cause conflict and can even cause some pretty strong confrontations. If you've ever got into a discussion with somebody who has a different doctrinal perspective with you, from you, it can get strong. And there's nothing wrong with a little bit of strong discussion as long as it's still in a right spirit and a right attitude. We need to believe what we believe. Amen. But unfortunately, the fact that doctrine divides is an inescapable part of something that is true. Truth divides. Truth exposes that which is false. It's not a matter of truth uh, being aggressive or truth being confrontational, but light dispels darkness simply by being light. It can't help it. It's just light. Light is not actively trying to seek and destroy darkness, but light by its very nature and identity dispels darkness. You cannot turn a light on and keep a room dark. The two are not compatible. Light simply dispels darkness by its identity. And doctrine has a similar impact. You see, doctrine simply means teaching. It means how we define what we believe. And sound doctrine must not only come from the Scriptures, but it must also have a foundation that is supported by the whole of Scripture. It's easy to take Scripture in isolation, and we talked about that on Wednesday night as well, and to say, well, I believe that this means. But unless that statement is supported in other passages, Old and New Testaments, and your understanding weaves together like a tapestry and all works, your doctrine is questionable. Doctrine must not only have a scriptural foundation, it must be supported by all of Scripture. Amen. Otherwise, we need to have another look at what it is. And just as light dispels darkness, when you take a doctrine and you hold it up against the Word of God, its truthfulness is either quickly confirmed or rejected. The Word of God does not attack the false doctrine, but it simply exposes it simply by being true, as light dispels darkness. And in an effort to avoid doctrinal conflict, and nobody likes conflict. If you like conflict, I suggest you may need to pray. Conflict is, is not pleasant. Nobody likes to be confronted, and, and, and we, we don't want conflict. But the only way that you can ever completely avoid conflict in your life is to never stand for anything, is to agree with whoever you're with. If one day you're with somebody that believes A, you say, well, I believe that too. But then the next day you're with somebody that says, I believe B, and you say, well, I believe that too. That's the only way you can avoid conflict. The only problem then is if you happen to be with A and B together. Then you might be in a difficult situation. But if you believe anything, you will find somebody that believes differently to you. Amen. And so to avoid that conflict and those differences of opinions, there are some people that have taken the approach, even in what is largely called Christendom, that doctrine is not really important. That as long as we believe in God, that we love God and love one another, that's all that really matters. And that sounds really nice, but it doesn't actually make any sense. Because it's like saying, well, I believe in mathematics. 
I believe that maths is really important. But it doesn't matter whether or not I can count or add numbers together. But I believe that maths is good. I mean, if you're going to say, well, we have to love God, well, what does that mean? How do we do that? You're going to say, well, as long as we love one another, well, well what does that mean? Because there's a lot of different perspectives on that, on what it means to love one another. And so really, you cannot avoid doctrine. We all have doctrine. All of us have beliefs. All of us have things that we have been taught that we believe, whether we're talking about the secular world or whether we're talking about the spiritual world. There is good doctrine. When you go to the doctor, when I was in hospital a week or two ago, I wasn't interested in whether or not the surgeon was a nice person. I wasn't interested in whether or not he really cared about me. I was interested in his doctrine. If he was going to stick a sharp implement into my body and make some holes, I wanted to know that his doctrine was good. I wanted to know that the nurses had good doctrine of hygiene, that they believed in sterilized equipment and washing your hands. I wanted to know that they believed that when they cut you open, they should put you back together again, not just leave you that way and see what happens. We all like good doctrine when you think about it. Amen. There are things that we think it is important what somebody believes. There's a reason we have road rules. It's a form of doctrine. It'd be an interesting place if everybody just made it up. As they, some people, it seems, still do. But, but if everybody just, if the, if the government said, drive how you like, drive on the side of the road of your choice, at the speed of your choice, follow as close as you like, indicate whether you feel like it or not, don't get me started on that subject, what kind of a, a traffic situation would we have if nobody could say, hey, that's wrong? Oh, don't tell me I'm wrong. That's offensive. This is my preference. That's foolishness. And it's just as foolish when it comes to the things of God. God did not, Jesus Christ did not go to the cross to say, do what you please. But he gave us his word. Amen. And throughout the epistles, and for the sake of time, I'd love to, to spend I could probably spend five or six weeks just on apostolic doctrine, but for the sake of time, throughout the epistles, the Apostle Paul emphasized the importance of sound doctrine. He told those young men like Timothy and Titus that he was developing in the ministry. He said, take heed unto your doctrine. Pay attention to what you're teaching. He said, the doctrine that I have taught you, hang on to that. He said, it will save you and those that hear you. He didn't say the miraculous would save them, although Paul believed in the miraculous. He said, it is the doctrine, the things that you teach from the Word of God. Those are the things that our salvation is found in. Amen. In fact, he wrote to Timothy and warned him that there would come a time when man would listen to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. That's a pretty strong statement. He wrote that to a young man that was pastoring in, a, in a, a city or rather really was probably more of a region and he wasn't speaking about the people outside of the church. They already were listening to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. You read about what Ephesus was like. They were worshipping Diana, the goddess, and all manner of horrible things were taking place. They had the doctrines of devils already squared away. But the warning 
was written to Timothy that it would come from within. That's the warning, and we have to remember that. Amen. So let's consider some of the, the foundational doctrines of the apostles. We, we could divide them up into a lot of categories, but let's consider some of what we, we think are perhaps the, the more significant ones, if we can put it that way. Who was Jesus Christ? Who did the apostles say that Jesus was? What does the Bible say? Because when we read the Gospels, they were penned by the apostles. When we read the epistles and the book of Acts, they were written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God by these men, whom we claim a connection with if we say we're apostolic. John chapter 14 and verse 6 says, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And these are on the wall, so don't feel like you have to turn. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us, or that will be sufficient. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. That's an incredible statement. That's an incredible statement. Jesus, and we'll see this in some verses coming, Jesus was saying boldly to Philip, I am the visible of the invisible. When you look at me, when you see this Son of God in flesh, you are seeing the visible representation of the invisible God. And then he said in verse 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Amen. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 tells us that this is the church of God and that he purchased it with his own blood. God purchased the church with his own blood. Whose blood was shed for you and I? Jesus Christ's blood was shed on the cross. God manifest in the flesh. Philippians 2, 9 to 11, and I'm moving with a little bit of speed. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And people wonder why we make a fuss about the name of Jesus. I mean, there is no higher name. There is no authority that you can appeal to above Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. You go to the bank and somebody serves you and you're not happy, you can ask to speak to the manager. That's not happy. You can, you can keep working your way up. Eventually, you probably hit some ceiling where they won't want to talk to you. But when you appeal to Jesus, you go beyond every court, every corporation, every government, every superpower, everything that ever has been or ever will be. He is above it and beyond it. Amen. That's who Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, who is, this is what we were talking about from John, who is the image of the invisible God, the seeable of the unseeable. Amen. The firstborn of every creature. Verse 16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. By who? The image of the invisible God. And he is before all things, 
And by him all things consist. In other words, he holds everything together. Everything is held together by the power of God. The planets in their orbits, the perfect distances, the perfect amount of gravity, the perfect mass of every planet, and I'll get into areas that I know nothing about if I'm not careful, but all of that is perfectly set by God so that nothing crashes, nothing runs, there's no oops moments in outer space. Oops, well, Jupiter ran into Pluto, that was unfortunate. That doesn't happen. Because God said this, and you know, you see, they used to see those entertainers years ago that used to be able to spin plates on sticks. The Lord's not running around spinning planets. He just says, he says it and he just does it. He just said, let there be, and it all begin to spin. In its perfect place. All things were made by him and for him. He is the head of the body, verse 18. The church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him, that in all things, he might have the preeminence. He's number one. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The next verse of my list is Colossians 2 and 9, which is the same theme. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And when you read that it says it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. When we read about Father, we're reading about God. And when you go back to your Old Testament, see how God feels about sharing anything with anybody when it comes to glory and majesty. He said, I am the Lord alone, by myself, none beside me. But we get to the New Testament and that same God that said, there's nobody else said that it pleased him that in this man should all the fullness dwell. That tells us that it's the one and the same God. Amen. First Timothy 2 and 5, for there is one God. And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. First Timothy 3 and 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was revealed in the flesh. The visible of the invisible, the seeable of the unseeable, was revealed in a manger in Bethlehem. Hallelujah. When we talk about the Son of God, We do not talk about God's right-hand man or his deputy or his assistant whatever, assistant deity. But we talk about God revealing himself in human form to be the Savior of the world. Hallelujah. And a couple of verses to reference what I've already touched on. Isaiah 44 and 24. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer. And he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. 45 and 12 of the same book. It says, I have made the earth and created man upon it. Even my hands have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. Isaiah 47 and 4 says, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. The apostles understood clearly and preached that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. The things they wrote about him in the New Testament, God claimed as being his own in the Old. So either the Bible is wrong or the things they wrote confirm who Jesus was. The Lord said, I made everything by myself in Isaiah. 
In Colossians, it talks about Jesus and says, By Him were all things made. The Old Testament in Isaiah described the Lord as their Redeemer. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ redeemed us from our sins. The apostles had no doubt about who they were preaching about. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5 and 19, the last verse on this subject. I could go a long time on this, but we won't. 2 Corinthians 5 and 19 says, To wit, or to know that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. In other words, he paid for our sins. He wiped our account and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So when we say we are apostolic, when we claim to be an apostolic church, when we say, well, yes, we connect with those apostles back then, we have to say the same things about Jesus that they said. What they wrote, we preach. What they said he was, we say he was. Or we're not apostolic. It's that simple. Paul wrote in one place and he said, if somebody comes and preaches another Jesus. In other words, somebody that doesn't line up with the Scripture. If we're going to be apostolic, we have to preach that Jesus Christ was God, manifest, revealed in the flesh. He wasn't some kind of mysterious son that sat next to God from eternity past on his Game Boy waiting for an opportunity to go and do something. When the earth was made, there was only God. And he spoke. And when he spoke in the earth, you see, all of, this is the thing that so much of humanity has backwards. I, I believe we should look after our environment and our resources. I don't think we should be wasteful or destructive. But, but when, when we start to elevate the care of the earth above the care of the man that lives on the earth, we've got it backwards in God's sight. Because all of the solar system, all of the majesty of the stars that we see is all the backdrop. It's the set on the stage for God to demonstrate not only his power, but his love for humanity. It's like when they do a play and they bring in all these props and things and they're all serving a role, but it's about the people. And the earth and all these spinning mud balls that we have in our galaxy are all set there for God to say, the stage is set. Let us make man in our image. So God made man in his own image. Male and female created he them. And he made that man. And as he breathed into Adam the breath of life and Adam became a living soul, God already knew that Adam would sin. And he said, this is not yet my greatest act. (laughs) My greatest act is coming. Because I know this man is going to fail. And mankind is going to mess up. He said, but I'm going to come. It's the Spirit of God overshadowed the Virgin Mary's womb. And she miraculously became with child. And that child was God manifest in the flesh. And finally, after thousands of years, there was somebody who was sinless. That could pay a price. That's why the earth was made. It is the stage, if you please, or the platform for God to reveal himself. That's why we have the planet. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. How did I get on that? That wasn't in my notes. Bless the Lord. So that's that's a brief discussion on who the apostle said that Jesus was or is. Jesus is not a was. He's an is. He's present tense. Bless the Lord. But then the next big question is salvation. What must we do to be saved? 
If we establish that God loved us so much that He would reveal Himself in flesh to be our Savior, how do we get a hold of that? If we can read the Bible and it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that, that even for, you know, He died for us while we were yet sinners, the Bible says. We read about that incredible love that's hard for us to comprehend. It's, it's amazing, but how do I get that? How do I say, I want a piece of that? I want to take a hold of this opportunity to escape an eternity of suffering and torment. How do I do that? Well, without doctrine, that's very, very hard. Without somebody saying, well, here it is. It's like giving a, a five-year-old the keys to your car. So there you are, there's the BMW. What's a five-year-old going to do with the BMW? I don't know how to start the engine. Well, some five-year-olds might, but they can't reach the pedals and see over the dashboard at the same time. It's useless. It's, there's power there, there's ability, there's functionality. There's all these features that it has, but there's no access. Until somebody comes along, usually when they're a little bit older, and says, now if you put this in here and turn this and press that, this thing comes to life and suddenly that power is released. Good doctrine, sound doctrine, accurate doctrine able, enables us to access the power of the gospel. Faith mingled with the Word of God, releases the power of God. Amen. And so Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus, He said, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that was a freebie because Nicodemus wasn't even asking about going to heaven. Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher come from God because of the, the miracles that you do. And Jesus just came out and said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, can't get to heaven, Nicodemus. Nicodemus' brain was stuck in earthly things, and he says, can a man enter into his mother's womb, be born a second time? Is that possible? And Jesus in verse 5 said, except a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I promise you that Nicodemus didn't really understand what Jesus was saying. And I'd go as far as to say, if you and I had been sitting there that night, neither would have we. Because we read it looking back at the Scripture. I mean, if you'd never heard, if you went to, somebody came to you that you'd never heard about baptism or anything to do with the Lord, and they said, you need to be born of water and spirit, they'd be like, what? And Nicodemus was struggling, but Jesus, because of who he was and what he was in the process of doing, was talking about what was becoming available. Because we know he went to the cross, he died, he was buried, and he rose again in Acts, the second chapter. We, we read it last week, but we read from verses 37 to 39 today. As Peter spoke to them about how Jesus had died for them, in verse 37 it says, They were pricked in their heart, said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We have sinned. We need to be saved. Tell us, Peter, what do we need to do? In verse 38, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What are we going to do? There it is. Jesus said, you've got to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Peter stepped up to the... There was probably no pulpit there. But he stepped up and he said, you've got to be baptized. There's your water, Nicodemus. You've got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. There's your Spirit, Nicodemus. He said, that's how you're born again. 
You've got to take in the context. Peter has only just been filled with the Holy Ghost for the first time himself. Peter and the other 119 believers that are in the upper room are speaking other tongues, carrying on like crazy, like a bunch of mad people. And they come spilling out of that place and the crowd thinks they're nuts and Peter begins to preach to them and it's still bubbling in his soul. He, you know, he's, he's done a little bit of preaching and talking beforehand, but there's something different today. There's some, because as he's, Peter's probably having a hard time speaking in his own language. You know, you don't read it there, but between the lines as the Holy Ghost is moving on him and he's telling them about who Jesus was, he's probably trying to have to hold back from bursting out and being refilled with the Holy Ghost again. But he told them that's how you're baptized. That's how you're born again. It's got to be in Jesus' name. You've got to receive the Holy Ghost. And the promise, he said, see, some people say, well, that was for then. That was for then. Well, my question is, well, what do we have now? Because Peter said the promise is for you, your children, as many of us far off and as many as the Lord our God. So if God's still calling, the promise is still real. As long as he's still calling, the promise is still available. Bless the Lord. We get in, the, in chapter 8 of the book of Acts and it talks to us about how the apostles are at Jerusalem. There's a young man named Philip who'd gone down to Samaria. This was a, not the place the Jews liked. They were mixed people, half Jewish, half Gentile. He'd preach them about Jesus. They were being baptized in Jesus' name, just like Peter said. But then the elders came down for them and laid their hands on them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. They'd heard the gospel. They still needed to receive the Holy Ghost. It was part of the package. We get to Acts chapter 10, and I'm moving quickly. Acts 10 and 43 to 48. Peter comes to Cornelius' house. We're not in mixed race now. We're in completely Gentiles. We're in Roman houses. Peter's breaking all the rules. And he goes to this man's house, and he begins to tell them a similar message to what he told them in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified, he rose again, and right in the middle of his preaching, let's, let's read in verse 43, it says, To him, speaking about Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, there's that name again, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. And while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. How did they know the Holy Ghost fell? Did the room change color? Did the head start spinning around? How do we know the Holy Ghost fell? It says, And they of the circumcision which believed, those that went with Peter, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because that on the, on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Why? How do they know? For they heard them speak with tongues. How magnify God. They heard them. There was evidence. They said, that They've just got the Holy Ghost. These Romans may have been bilingual. They may have spoke whatever they spoke in Rome back then an Aramaic, whatever was, but when they were filled with the Holy Ghost, something supernatural happened. And Peter said, well, that's just wonderful. Everybody loves God. We're going to heaven together. No, he didn't say that. He said, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? Is there any reason why we shouldn't baptize this Roman and his house? Seeing they have received the Holy Ghost just like we did. And he commanded them. He had some boldness. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord and they prayed, they asked him to stay for certain days. Amen. Chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Came to pass, verse 1. Keeping you busy back there, Matty. Came to pass 
that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily or truly baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. We see it repeated again and again. This is the apostles' doctrine. This is the apostles' doctrine. We jump into the epistles in the Romans chapter 6. And, and there, are, there are many, many, many more scriptures I could use. And I was having a hard time culling as I was putting my notes together because I wanted to read them all. But Romans 6 and 3 says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Two chapters later in Romans 8 and 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So, trying to stay on track. We have to be baptized into Jesus Christ. We have to have the Spirit of the Lord in us or we are none of His. If we have the Holy Ghost, it's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It will quicken or make alive our mortal bodies. I believe that is twofold. One is the life that it brings us now. And number two is when He returns. When that trumpet sounds, the Bible says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, on a, in a time and a day when only God knows, all of a sudden, gravity is gone. All of a sudden, we're going to begin to go to be with the Lord and we are going to be transformed in an instant. Hallelujah. If that doesn't stir your soul, you need to pray. If that doesn't stir something in you, you need to ask God to fill you with the Holy Ghost again. Because that's why I'm here. That's why I'm in the house of God today. Because when He comes back by faith and His grace, I want to go. Hallelujah. I love church. I love to be in the house of God. I love to be with the family of God. But that's not what this is about. This family is about helping each other to be there when He returns. But that's what it's about. Amen. That's why things like being in prison and being shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and rejected and all that stuff, it upset Paul. Don't misunderstand. He wasn't some unfeeling superhero. It got him down some days. There were times he was downcast and in despair. But he was fixed on his hope. He said, I'm pressing. There's a mark. And every time they, they hit him, every time they rejected him, every time they roughly threw him into a jail cell, he was still able to look up and find that mark and say, I'm pressing, I'm reaching. I haven't apprehended it yet, but I'm going for that mark. Hallelujah. You see, the apostles preached and taught that you must be born again. That, that meant you, were, you repented, you were baptized in Jesus' name, and you received the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. 
It didn't matter what culture they were in. It was the same message. They preached it in Jerusalem. They preached it in Samaria. They preached it in Caesarea. And when they went on to Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and all those other places, they preached the same message. It didn't change from culture to culture. It stayed the same. Because it is still the only way to be saved. So culture didn't influence the message of the gospel. They also, it didn't matter if somebody already had faith in God. We read about Cornelius. We read about the believers in Ephesus. They still told him, you've got to be born again. They didn't just say, well, you believe in Jesus, everything's just dandy. No, no. So what you've got is great, but let me tell you, there's a little more. You believe in Jesus, that's fantastic. But like he said, he said to those believers, have you received the Holy Ghost? If you're here this morning, you've never been born again, but you believe in Jesus Christ, I would ask you the same question. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? It's an important question. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The apostles were identified by who they declared Jesus to be and by the gospel message they preached that all men needed to be born again. They were constantly told to stop preaching in that name. They got the officials, the Jews, they all got hung up on the name of Jesus. And there's a reason for that. Because the devil knows that when that name is spoken in faith, he's powerless. He holds this world in shackles of sin and bondage, but when the name of Jesus is declared in faith, chains are still broken. Prisoners are still set free. Bodies are still healed. That's why they opposed the name of Jesus. The apostles taught that the Holy Ghost would not only fill us when we're born again, but that it would continue to transform us as individuals, that the Spirit of God working together with the Word of God would change the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we act, and the way that we speak. Ephesians 4 22 to 24 sums it up really nicely. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says that you put off concerning the former conversation of the old lifestyle, that old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. The way we used to live was corrupt and sinful because of the lusts of our flesh. Put that off, he said. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Change your thinking. Brother Paulus likes to say we need to be delivered from stinking thinking. We need a checkup from the neck up. That's what Brother Paulus likes to say. I'm not quite as sharp as that, but that's a good way to put it. Amen. And then verse 24, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That process doesn't cease until Jesus comes back. We need to be daily saying, get behind me, old man. Lord, change my mind. Put on the word of God. Put on what the Lord would have in my life. They taught that the miraculous that we read about in the Gospels and the book of Acts are still a part of the New Testament church. That through the gifts of the Spirit, signs and wonders would happen and should still happen. For the sake of time, we won't go to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, but that's the instruction the Apostle Paul gave us about the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. The Apostles believed and taught that God would give apostolic ministry to the church to equip them, excuse me, to serve in the kingdom of God. Ephesians 4 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or the completing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Modern day Christianity has perverted those two verses. 
They treat the apostolic ministry as just an option amongst choices rather than recognizing the power and authority of God. And they also choose to let those that are in ministry do all the work. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God gives the ministry to the church so that the church can be equipped. God wants all of us enlisted. God wants all of us involved in the work of the ministry. We don't like that word, but it's work of the ministry, of serving in the kingdom of God, of edifying, of building up and strengthening the body of Christ. It is not my responsibility to do all the work in the kingdom of God. If it was, the kingdom of God would have been a really bad way because I'm limited. There's things I just can't do, whether it's ability or time or whatever it is. There are things that nobody does everything. That's why it's a body. But God wants all of us involved. It's a cliche, but somebody said the church is is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. All hands on deck. Everybody involved. That's what the apostles believed and taught. You look at the apostle Paul, and we focus on him a lot, but everywhere he was going, there were people he was raising up. He was saying, right, you can take care of this. And you can, See, he didn't stay in places long. He went in there. There's some people converted. He grabbed somebody, and that new convert that he thought had a good spirit. He said, you're the man. You're teaching the Bible study next Wednesday night. Here's the manual. Call me if you have any trouble. But he was about getting people involved in the kingdom of God. The apostles believed and taught the church that they needed to have unity and to care for one another. The Lord said in John 13, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. Not the kind of love the world's thinking about. That ain't love. That's lust. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. First John 4 and 7, the apostle wrote and said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. What does the love of God look like amongst the church? It's demonstrated in things like the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering. It's demonstrated in that if my brother or sister is having a bad day and they maybe say something that's not too pleasant, I'm willing to wear that. But it's also demonstrated, see, real love is also demonstrated that if my brother here is going off the rails and I'm worried about where his life's headed, real love says I'll sit down with him and not say, you know, where are your brains at, what are you doing, you're an idiot. But say, bro, I'm worried about you. I'm praying for you. I'm concerned about what, you know, what's going on in your life. We care about you. See, the world doesn't like that. The world would rather be affirmed in their sin than confronted for change. That's humanity. And that's not the love of God. See, the world thinks that if we love everybody, we won't say anything about what everybody does. That's not love. Somebody's bashing their head against the wall. Oh, I'm not going to say anything. I love that person. If you love that person, you'll do something about stopping them from driving their head into the wall because that's what love does. Amen. That's the kind of love that God wants us to have. The apostles taught, and I'm not too far off being finished. The apostles taught that giving is a part of the church. And that sacrifice, even though we're not doing animals and all that stuff, that's all Old Testament, but sacrifice still honors God. That's Bible. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, 2-3, talking about the church in Macedonia, how that in a great trial of their affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves." 
One chapter later in 9 and verse 6, he said, But this I say, that he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly, of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's part of the New Testament church. I'm not talking about tithing. That's, that's not negotiable if you're serving God. I'm talking about being willing when God moves on us. You see, we live really in an affluent nation. I know there are people that are looking for jobs, and I'm not making light of anybody's struggles. I understand the reality of life. But we really, when you look at, step back and look at this planet, we are incredibly blessed. And when, when, when the Lord moves on us to give, it's not about because we have too much, but it's about honoring the Lord. You see, when God blesses you, and I may get a little bit direct this morning, you'll have to forgive me for that. But when God blesses you and He gives you that better job, or somehow your bills are reduced, you know, maybe your great grandmother passes away and your mortgage gets paid off, or when God increases your situation, do we think only about our standard of living, or do we also think about increasing our standard of giving? When the Lord blesses you materially, do you think, well, hey, I could do a bit more for the mission field? Or do we just think, we could get a bigger TV? I'm not saying it's wrong to have some of the material things of this life. You, those of you know, I don't, I'm not teaching about living a Spartan existence. But when God increases the goodness in our lives, do we just build bigger barns? Are we interested in the kingdom? Now, we take up offerings from time to time. It might be Save Our Children. We did that one recently for National Sunday School. It might be an AYM offering. It might be a compassion offering when something happens like the, the terrible storms in Vanuatu. And there's opportunities for us to be involved in what God is doing. And I want to challenge you. I'm, I'm not rebuking you this morning. I want to challenge you. Where, where do we fit? Do we just oh, do we brush that off? Or do we, you know, Paul said, don't give of necessity or gradually. Do we say, well, I better give because if I don't. You know, when, when that kind of thing happens, the question I ask myself, and my wife and I have had this conversation many times, and I'm not patting myself on the back, trust me, I'm not a huge giver, is can I not give? Is there any reason why I cannot give to what God is wanting to do? Giving sacrificially is still a part of the apostolic church. And we need to, to be aware of that. This church has historically been a good giving church, and, and the Lord has blessed us for that. But there are some areas where I think that God would like to stir our hearts a little more. Amen. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. I'm going to leave that alone. Bless the Lord. One last area. And I've left this to last because I really feel like the Lord is dealing with us about this. The apostles taught, believed, and practiced prayer. The apostolic church is founded on prayer. Everything that we do for God, everything that we are for God, everything that God does in us and through us is born in prayer. Otherwise, it will become frustrated. 
and stunted and we will not see the will of God in our lives. When you look through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the church was born in a prayer meeting. Acts chapter 3, the apostles, Peter and John, they saw the lame man healed. What were they doing? They were on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. Acts chapter 6, when they had some social problems in the church with the old ladies not being looked after properly, the apostles said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer. Acts chapter 9, Ananias had a vision and was in a conversation with God about going and praying for Saul of Tarsus. Ananias didn't want to pray for Saul of Tarsus. I wouldn't have wanted to pray for Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was throwing Christians in prison dragging women and children out of their houses and just destroying families because they believed in Jesus Christ. If I was praying and the Lord said to me, go and pray for Saul of Tarsus, I'd hit my head on the end of the bed because I'd think something was wrong. But Ananias had a relationship with God. And when God spoke to Ananias, he said, just trust me, this man is chosen by me, he's going to be a great witness amongst the Gentiles. Ananias was in a place of prayer when God spoke to him. And this is all we hear about Ananias. This particular Ananias, I don't believe he's obviously not the one from Acts 5 because he was dead. But, but the only thing we hear about this man is that he was in communication with God. And because he heard the voice of God and went and prayed for Saul of Tarsus, God restored Saul's sight and Saul became one of the greatest apostles to ever preach the gospel because one man was in prayer. Acts chapter 10, the Bible says that Cornelius prayed to God always. And he didn't even have the Holy Ghost. But he prayed to God always. And Peter, Peter, I'm not saying all the time, but at that particular time, Peter was probably more carnal than Cornelius was. Because Peter was hungry for lunch. And God had to give him a vision of food to wake him up. And the Lord told him to go to Cornelius' house and we know what happened there. Acts chapter 12. The apostle Peter is thrown into prison. The church has a prayer meeting. They don't storm town hall. They don't look for the best lawyer they can find. They go to pray. An angel from God releases Peter from prison. And then they don't believe it's him. Aren't we amazing? God, hear our prayers. Peter's at the door. Don't be ridiculous. He's in prison. God, hear our prayers. Sometimes I think God does the miraculous in spite of us, not because of us. Lord, set Peter free. Peter's at the door. Don't be stupid. Peter, Lord, set Peter. But they were at least they were in prayer. Bless the Lord. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas at the midnight hour prayed. And sang. Sometimes we think they just sang. We know it says they prayed first. The prison began to shake. The doors fell open. The chains fell off. And the revival came to a to jailer's household that night. And I'm telling you, if he had a whipped my back, I'd have had to be praying before I gave him a Bible study too. I'd have been wanting to give him something else. Not a Bible study. But fortunately, Paul and Silas were in the Holy Ghost. And they were able to minister from their suffering. Bless the Lord. There's a lesson in that, friends. God can use your circumstance.
to minister. God wants to change our circumstances sometimes, but sometimes the circumstance is the opportunity. Sometimes it's in that struggle that there is an opportunity that God gives us to minister to somebody that we would never have found. If Paul and Silas had not been thrown into prison, the jailer would have never heard the gospel. I don't think anyway. I don't, you know. They were pretty hard, sinful men, those those jailers. But because of their suffering and the fact that they were able to lift their spirits in the middle of their pain, as their backs, when you've been, I've never been whipped, thank you, Jesus. But to be whipped and to be in stocks, there is no comfortable position. There is no just move a little bit, oh, There's no place where you get comfortable. They were in pain. And they begin to pray. And they begin to sing. And God began to respond, which tells me that when they were praying, they weren't praying, oh God, poor me. See, the Bible says at one point that the disciples counted an honor to suffer for his sake. And when Paul and Silas prayed and took that opportunity, God did the miraculous. And my challenge to us this morning as we bring this lesson to an end is that if we're honest, prayer is probably the area of the apostles' doctrine that we could do some more work in, that we are probably a little weak in because everything flows from. If you're not praying, you're in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. If you cannot please God, you'll sin. If you sin, you'll be guilty. If you don't do something about it, you go to a godless eternity. That's how important prayer is. If you are not praying, you are planning to fail. You're not saying it, but really what you're saying is, I'm going to let God down. I'm going to fail. If we do not pray, that's why I'm a broken record sometimes about prayer. That's why it grieves me when there's more people in the chairs before service than there is in the prayer room. When there's more phones being played on before the service than there are young people in the prayer room. Young people, let me challenge you. Log the amount of time you spend on your phones. And take a tithe of that time and put it into prayer. Just a tithe, not the whole lot. Think about how much time you spend on that thing and divide it by 10 and give that tithe to God in prayer every week. See what happens in your life. Bless the Lord. Brother Bernard taught once, and it's a fantastic challenge. He said, if you want to think about how much time you spend on TV, he said, match your TV time with prayer time. One's going to get smaller and one's going to get bigger. (laughs) They won't stay the same. Bless the Lord. Parents, let me challenge you with your kids. Tell them to put their phones away before service. There's enough days in the week for that job. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. You know, we worry sometimes about being direct and bold, but when you read the book of Acts, and you read the Apostle Paul. When he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, when Peter dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, whew, that was uh, definitely not politically correct. 
but God honored where he was at, and they died. Bless the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. A healthy honor and respect and reverence for God is where wisdom starts. Bless him. When we come into his house, we need to have that awe. God help us. Let's stand together this morning. Bless the Lord.